Hello, everybody, and welcome to the News Paste podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Vedmore, and I'm here today, and I'm really excited. I'm here uh, with a fellow Welshman, uh, a man called Hedley Thies. Um, I, I, I've got to be careful how I pronounce his first name, because in Wales, Hedley uh, means the police. So, in a sense, it's Police Reese. Yeah, Police Reese. And who's he policing? Well, he's policing the pharmaceutical industry. And they need policing. If there's any industry on Earth right now that needs a good look in the mirror and a good investigation by the cop people at the cop shop, he should be Big Pharma. And so at his um, substack, Headley Reese. So that's H-E-D-L-E-Y. So Headley Reese dot substack dot com which is called inside pharma you'll find a lot of uh the information that you need to understand what's not only what's really going on but how we can uh pull away the little cards right at the bottom of this massive pharmaceutical house of cards that's been built especially i mean i i'm gonna say especially over the past two three years with the the implementation of the covid infrastructure but in actual fact this has been a project that was probably realized in the 80s uh enacted in the 90s and was um something that is much more uh intriguing and i'm really happy to Im invite this wonderful welshman he lives probably 30 miles down the road from me um uh onto the show Hedley reese thank you so much for coming on can you tell people a bit about yourself yeah, thanks, Johnny. I must say, I've never heard that little uh, quirk on my name, uh, <laughs> Police Reese. <laughs> but it's <laughs> true, very, isn't it? It's I'm true. very inventive, I must say. <laughs> you must have been thinking about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think about the police all of the time, worry about them, I do. <laughs> so, yeah, I've been running my own business consultancy in biopharmaceuticals since 2005, called PharmaFlow. And I basically advise companies who are developing things like vaccines. Uh, it's a difficult uh, activity. You've got to be very, very careful in the way you handle these things. So it's a safety critical industry like nuclear, like aviation. So you're not sort of, you know, bashing, bashing metal <clears throat> where you can get away with things. So I, I, prior to that, I spent 12 years in what is called biotech. Now, biotech is um, small drug developers who use contract manufacturers to develop the drug. They, they, they haven't got the money to own their own facilities. Mm -hmm. uh, so they get maybe, say, 20, 30 billion pounds dollars in investment, and they start to develop the drug, the preclinical testing, that's before it goes into humans, obviously, by making small quantities, and they're trying to prove that the drug's got a future. Yeah. Now, uh, so the, the skill set I developed there was managing supply chains with a whole sort of chain of different companies who are dealing with a different stage of manufacture. If you think of an aircraft or a car, it would be the undercarriage, you know, it would be the wings, the fuselage, and you, you have to, you're basically buying in these services. So, it's not just the manufacturing experience you need, but you also need the procurement experience. Um, so I, I, I was doing that from, uh, let me think, 1996 to uh, 2005. And is that when the biotech industry really uh, has started to to come into its own and start to be noticeable? Absolutely, yeah. I, I, went, I went to work for British Biotech, which it turns out was... And that's how I know about this. I mean, they scammed the world mm -hmm. because they claimed they had two products that were going to be massive and they had nothing in the pipeline at all. What do you mean? They they they, they had snake oil. Yeah. <laughs> that's all they had in the end. Is they, well, they... I, I tell you a funny story because uh, I am um, one of the compound, the lead compound called Marimistat. If this was supposed to be cure all sorts of cancers. Uh, just before I left, I, I'd applied for what they call zero for zero tariff uh, duty for the chemical. And they came back and said, no, you can't do this because this is a sunscreen. And the chemical industry would let. I said, a sunscreen? <laughs> no, this is supposed to be the world's biggest. Uh, so 
it's very easy to con the world with press releases and science. And mm. that's what's been happening for the last, you know, um, yeah, the, 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 the last 25, 30 years. I I, I would I I would I would put forward that it might have been happening for the last hundred and fifty years, maybe more. <laughs> Just because I've I've gone back into newspaper archives um in my own research and I've gone back into the eighteen hundreds and early nineteen hundreds and discovered, you know, the same conversations happening the same demonization of the same you know, people who question what medical regime is being um, enforced. And I, I say this in relation to um, uh, the, the uh, smallpox vaccine um, uh, and how it was uh, implemented in roughly the same way with uh, little consent and there would still be damage. I mean, this is times where you had to cut the patient and rub on a little bit of uh this stuff and of course a lot of these people weren't the 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 best at uh, sterilizing their equipment so you would have the same sort of people who have been uh struck down by illnesses because of these things and in the newspapers there were people who were saying oh these anti-vaccinators and how stupid they are how silly they don't know what they're speaking about they just gather in circles like hens and they they talk about the worship of moloch and you know it's like they, they try and demonize the people um, but that's because they were trying to sell uh, their medical interventions for a, they've been doing it for a long time. And uh, but this in the biomedical world, this has really been since the 90s, I suppose. So what what are you doing currently? What are you doing? What I, what is your main focus? Trying to stop the jabs. Yeah, um, I, I was on GBD, GB News yesterday. Um, it was a Nigel Farage uh, slot, but um, uh, the fox was on it. The fox was on it, yes, and he had a cold. He wasn't uh, he wasn't <laughs> too happy with that. But uh, what I did know is that they'd invited a professor of, of, of virology, I think, from Exeter University. I did. I'd, I'd given my spiel on how MHRA is not fit for purpose. You know, the, the industry has outsourced everything, so I painted a really black picture. And then this guy's been for the last two or three years been saying safe and effective, MHRA is world class and all that sort of thing. And so the guy came on expecting to just to have a one-to-one -one interview. <laughs> and he was sort of ambushed, but to be honest, I, 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 most times I'd say that's not fair. But if he knew that this was going to happen, he wouldn't have come on. He so people wouldn't have known. He couldn't say anything. All yeah. he could say was just you know um, uh, platitudes about you know that meant nothing. So the, the, one one of the things I see there is that there's a lot of people nowadays who think that they can choose like like the politicians used to in the the fifties and 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 before like the, the early sixties. They can choose how the interview goes. Who else is sitting in the interview? And because they're what they're doing is not actually having an interview. They they're manufacturing a propaganda that has to be told in a very certain specific way. Otherwise, people will see through it straight away yeah gosh you're a deep thinker you know no yeah i do do a bit of deep thinking here and there <laughs> not all of it is very is right or <laughs> sensible to be perfectly honest yeah so uh so I, I, I was talking to a document uh that the perseus group issued yesterday has gone to all mps andrew bridgen's very uh, proactive in helping getting a copy of it to all the mps in the house of lords and we're planning on going to 10 Downing Street um, next week or the week after to hand in the petition. There's a slot been booked. Uh, so I'm working with anyone who is sort of pushing forward in terms of uh, stopping the jab, have given them the key component of this that people don't seem to realize. There's so many scientists pitching in here, but... You know, there's as much science in in manufacturing and distribution and medicine as, as there is in, you know, 
I don't know what. There's not not a lot of science. A little no, bit preach it, days. preach it. This is this is something that I've heard you speak about, um, and you need to preach it. This is one of the most important parts, and this is what I mean about taking the lower cards away from the house of of cards that they've built. Please tell tell us about what what makes up this operation that isn't on, on the pharmaceutical side. How much of that is important? Because we need to know. Yeah. Well. Uh, I, 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 I look for ways to, to try and get us to hit home people. If you drive from Bridgen to Cardiff, you know, going past Swindon on your left-hand side, there's a big factory there that's owned by Cattle and Pharma Solutions. It's been there for years. They, they make um, soft gel capsules and also oral disintegrated tablets. Now, they are the second biggest contract manufacturer of drugs in the world. Um, and when you look at that plant, you can see, you know, it's like a car factory. It's like any other factory. And they're, they're making one. And Catlin actually did the what they call the fill finish for the, certainly for the Moderna uh, vaccines, because that's, that's public domain. So, uh, and it's all outsourced. So Moderna got no real knowledge of how to do it. Uh, they have to depend entirely on that on, on Catalan to tell you know, to do it. And it's based on a fee for service. So, and, and that's the big, big issue in pharma today. They've outsourced all the physical assets and their people. They fired the people, they've shot off all their assets. And all they do is patent molecules and sell uh, a market the the drugs that eventually uh, limp out of the system from the contract manufacturers, and there've been less and less coming to market every year. Okay, uh, I, yeah. I I just I, I just want to um, say because I I was uh, speaking with Mike Eden. Uh, a few months ago um it, it was off uh, off the record chat we he had uh, appreciated the uh, welcome five article i had written about the welcome trust and he wanted to to discuss things and he opened my eyes and it's something that i really want um the listeners to understand when we're talking about this um so i'm sorry, sorry to keep interrupting i'm trying to no, I, no, I, I, I'm, I'm, no, I'm trying to no, kind no. of like 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 make sure that that people are really clear on this one Something happened in the medical industry, and this was explained to me, and it made a lot more sense to why everything was happening. Something happened uh, uh, around two decades ago uh, in in the pharmaceutical industry, where basically um, the amount of compounds that you can make with the classic form of pharmaceutical process um, were had, had basically run out. They had tried nearly everything that would possibly work. All of the compounds were kind of like tested in a way that meant that that they couldn't go much further so it was everything was uh coming out of a uh, patent i think you you'd say where where they, they were they would be able to be uh sold for cheap on on the streets and it was very clear that if they wanted as a pharmaceutical giants wanted to remain giant companies that their future uh was in biotechnology in um, pharmaceuticals such as mrna and other new technologies because the old way of pharma was almost over the old pharmaceutical industry is almost over that's what kind of like mike eden uh, gave me the impression of um would you agree with that not in i, I mean i do a uh, a whistleblower report with mike just about every Sunday, and it comes out on a Wednesday for the Truth for Health Foundation. So <clears throat> Mike and I have lots of conversations. Um, we are sort of uh, at opposite ends of the product life cycle. You know, Mike was in R&D. He was VP of Pfizer, Allergy and Respiratory R&D. And I was the opposite end, you know, bringing the drug to market and then doing all the commercial distribution and, and that whole thing, the manufacture. Um, it's I've been I mean, I've been researching this a long time and it's very it's all in my Substack by the way. Um, I, there's 15 months of explanation of everything in there. So, you do a lot of work on it. You do a lot of work on it. It's, it's yeah, a big, yeah, a yeah. Big, well, big I, I, I mean, well done. I, yeah. So, what? Just give you the background here. In 1976, a company called Smith, Klein and French launched a drug called Tagamet for ulcers. You, you probably see, I, you, I know you're asking me this, you know what I'm going to say, but uh, 
Um, it took you know, that was a twelve-year drug development process, and it was a model of collaboration between the US and UK between R and D and commercial. Uh, five years later, Glaxo launched a drug called Zamtac, which was similar, but they didn't do all the research and development. They just copied the. They just picked a, a chemical compound that was similar, but the process for making it was cleaner, so there were less side effects. And then Glaxo targeted those sites. When the salespeople went to doctors to detail them about the product, they said, well, you know, the, the other product has got, got these side effects, you know. And within a few years, they were out selling uh, Targamed three to one. So the industry then thought, bloody hell, if you've got a patent and you've got a license to sell, you've got a block. And they were both blockbusters. You know, you could use sales and marketing to create a blockbuster. So that created a model. That's why they outsourced everything, because they thought we just need discovery research to find a compound, a patent and a sales and marketing team. And that's how the whole. So by the mid 80s, early 90s, everything was fully outsourced and um, everything was commodity. Like, you know, um, uh, you know, they were very simple chemical products. Um, and there was no real differentiation, so they turned then towards biologics and 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 and, and biotech. But bi biologics are even more difficult to make than not normal pharmaceuticals, and, and and that's the mistake because they outsourced everything. They didn't, they still don't realize what's involved in developing and manufacturing a, a, a drug. So in a sense, they've lost knowledge over the years. They used to do things to an extent that was, of course, uh, much more thorough. And then something happened. Now, I, I personally, I believe it's the um, complete restructuring of the UK pharmaceutical industry and, and the process of research that was done in the 90s under Richard Sykes. Um, that, that was one of the main reasons why all of this happened and why we've ended up in this direction. He's a very important person that people should look into. Um, say, is that the Richard Sykes who chaired the vaccine task force? Yes, yes, yes. The same Sorry guy. to interrupt, but the guy, the guy who formed our current, uh, the way research is collated on the internet worldwide and given out to people and uh, funded, um, and who uh, was responsible for the merger of Glaxo and SmithKline Beecham with Welcome PLC, which then became Welcome Trust and lost all of its accountability for all and responsibility for all of the stuff it had done before all of a sudden um at that time that was richard sykes he uh, uh, was uh, uh, all over that um and at the end uh he was the one who merged all those companies together responsible for the merger and then responsible for the reorganization of all this stuff and this leads to him ending up being responsible for the uh, the, the uk vaccine task force the, the head of the uk vaccine task force so it's like you know the, the people people think there's hundreds of thousands Thousands of people making the decisions on how this run but in actual fact over a 30-year period the main person who designed it is one and that's uh when you go and find out what he does he's either working for corporations or he's working for shadowy ent entities that are linked to lots of boys clubs like the royal society where they all sit round and have backdoor meetings with the government so that they can uh well we can see so they can do and get away with exactly what they're doing now and what you're trying to expose um yourself uh so so how do we um how do we go forward on um stopping them one of the things i might have cut you off earlier when when you were saying just with, with other information um was that is only a small part of this is actually about you know is controlled by people who are directly looking at the medicine most of this is uh distribution manufacturing how were the vaccines put out and who was behind the majority of the the, the actual on the ground distribution right well that's a good question um well i got personal experience or professional experience because i i was asked to um find a company to apply for a UK government grant, the Advanced Manufacturing Supply Chain Initiative uh, that came out from Vince Cable. There had been two rounds of it, and no life science company had been successful. And the Office for Life Sciences contacted me and said, you know, would you try and find a company? 
And could could you impose this, the manufacturing mindset on it, not the scientists? Uh, you know, scientists is a reductionist discipline, so they don't think in terms of endpoint. You know, or, or in terms of producing things physically, it's all about science. I said okay, so I went along to the um, QE2 centre uh, in London. Uh, they paid me four days consultancy to do it, which um, I, I was grateful of. Um, and Michael Fallon was doing the, the the opening address, and I happened to be on the table with someone who was there to do with uh, low carbon vehicles, but he was talking about biotech. So I said, "Oh, you know, what do you know about biotech?" So I'm the chairman of Oxford Biomedica. This is 2013 now, early 2013. Oh, by golly, I come here to find someone to apply for this grant. Whether that was a setup or not, I do not know. But mm. uh, anyway, I went to Oxford Biomedica, spoke to them and said, yeah, will you uh, c consult to us? I spent six or eight months. Uh, they're, based in they're based in Cowley then, overlooking the BMW plant with all the minis come out. I'd worked there twice before for two companies. That the, uh, British Biotech was the first one, and OSI's uh, Pharmaceuticals was the second one. So it was the third time on that site, and they bought the biologics plant from... Uh, from OSI, and um, I sort of said, right, you've got, you know, advanced manufacturing is about engaging with the end users of your product, developing the voice of the customer, then, you know, aligning the supply chain to, de to deliver on the requirements. So we need a hospital involved. So it so happened that I, I knew a Welsh lady called Bethan Bishop, who was working as head of innovation at, at the heart of England NHS Press. So she joined the project. And they also knew a, a chap, Daniel Steenstra, who was a professor at Cranford University. He joined the project. And together, uh, and Nick Rich from um, uh, Swans University, head of social technical um, systems. Uh, and we, got, we had a successful grant. And uh, and then just after that, and there was all backslapping and wonderful thing. And, and just after that, they invited me to this government think tank. It was feeding into the Ministerial Industry Strategy Group. Hmm. And uh, I, I said a few things that maybe shouldn't have been said because I, I said, well, what happened to the NHS? You know, I, 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 I can't really understand how this links up with, with what I was doing. So I, I, was, I wasn't invited to any more meetings. And also I was dropped from the project. Well, the project finished, and but they went off and spent the money on different things, on bioreactors, you know, toys for boys. Do you think so, it was a, rec a recruiting exercise? Say again. Do you think it was a recruiting exercise? Because I, I, I always, um, I, I have uh, kind of watched how uh, people get recruited. I've followed the the line. I do a lot of deep research into the lines of how people end up getting employed by other people. So, like for instance, we talked about Richard Sykes earlier, um, how he got uh, other people on board, like Roy Anderson and Neil Ferguson and Edward Holmes and Jeremy Farrar in like a team that was in the nineties, um, and and then they ended up becoming the most important people. And and of course they have to be recruited at some point. So I think it. Was was uh, between 94 and 96 that Farrar and Edward Holmes were recruited via Roy Anderson. Now, these are usually done, it seems, in uh, by, by calling together meetings, seeing what everybody says in the meetings, and then discounting the people who are going to say the things you don't want them to say, and, and no longer having them back to other meetings while the other people then and eventually you you churn out uh, a meeting full of people who agree with you uh do you think there might have been an element of that oh, to it well as again not being quite such a deep thinker as yourself no. but um yes that's what happened because the person i had a, a bit of a was the a bit of a to do with was the the ceo of the cell and gene therapy catapult which was government uh, innovate uk funded uh, he's he's left now, but he, I I I got a few tales about it because um, uh, I won't go into notes in the substack. But uh, we were at totally opposite ends of the thing, uh, and um, the cell and gene therapy catapult got have got really involved since 2013, and the chair now was the person on the vaccine, Ian McCubbin, XGSK, as uh, VP of supply chain. Who I met in 2012. Sykes as well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, he's 
the, uh, he's the chair of the cell and gene therapy catapult, and he was also the the supply chain person on the vaccine task force, and he actually set up the supply chains for all the vaccines in the UK. Wow. So it's yeah and you couldn't make it up and that's all in myself as well and i have to pinch myself now to believe what's going on because whether the uk government have been seduced or, or understood it they don't realize that mrna technology is impossible to manufacture successfully it's just mm-hmm. far too complex and experimental and it, when i was at in 2013 uh, Oxford Biomedic were doing a gene therapy for Novartis, which launched in 2017, called Kimbria. The side effects are horrendous, very much like the side effects that we get from the vaccines, neurological toxicities and cytokine uh, storm, uh, uh, cytokine release syndrome. Um, but that, that cost $470,000 a treatment. So none of these gene therapies are, are, are taken off, A, because of the, the, the side effects, B, because the hospital's got to pay as much as they as they pay for the product on top to be able to take the cells of the patients, and, and C, because, you know, uh, the, it, the logistics of it is impossible. You know, you have to take cells out of a patient, freeze them down to a, a minus 193 degrees C, cryogenically frozen, send them 400 miles down the road. They're down there then being genetically modified for two to six weeks. By the time they come back, the patient's died. And if the patient hadn't died, the product is probably being corrupted in, in, in some way and it kills the patient. This, so, this, yeah, that was one of the main things that struck me during the rollout of the vaccines was um, I uh, when they released the first um, uh, papers, when Matt Hancock started releasing, uh, his department started releasing the first papers about uh, the vaccine, um, the development, what they were doing. Um, it was it was awfully blank. There was large sections that were missing. Um, it, it was it was is uh, a clear that they would have to freeze mrna to levels uh very accurate and very precise or very bad things could happen and if they're not defrosted properly uh or defrosted however you say it <laughs> i mean i i'm not using the technical but thought, but, uh... yeah ford but it, uh, is this one of the main problems with this sort of tech that we don't have a freezing and thawing technology that is good enough to be able to actually uh, keep these products stable or will these products never be stable will mrna style products never be stable uh, with the state of the art today they will never be stable uh, I, i've always said uh, and I've, re- I've given presentation of this We've got to look at doing these therapies in the hospital, uh, which the MHRA have now changed the regulation so it can be done, but they haven't actually enabled skill, the skills and the uh, understanding and the knowledge uh, into the hospital. Like pa- Hospital pharmacies now can now finish off the gene therapies. They can do what they were doing in the vaccination centers, but they don't have the skills, they don't have the quality systems, they don't have anything. So they've taken manufacture of the finishing of the gene therapies out of regulation, and it could be a free-for-all. Um, so that in itself is is dangerous. Yeah. Um, About it... Go on, sorry, sorry, no, no, please, please, keep, keep oh, saying. Oh, no, yeah, I, I was going to address I that. was going to say, um, uh, yeah, I do that a lot, too. It's from being from South Wales. I know, I know, I know the pain. Um. I, I I've I've lost my train of thought. I had something in my brain that was really really interesting and uh, came from that. Oh yeah, well, well, at one point um I saw something about a year ago. Now I think it might have been on Peak Prosperity with Chris Martinson or someone someone along those lines somewhere along those lines where it showed that um the distribution of uh the the different batch numbers of vaccines had a different negative effect around each region 
of the country that they had been uh, taken to. Now, could it, it, a lot of people were, were suggesting that that could be that certain areas get worse batches or something along those lines, you know, like something predetermined sort of evil cackling in the background. Could that just be because of the technology not being ready so that uh, certain places are not ready to store and for these mRNA uh, technologies? I put, um, <laughs> Is it a distribution problem rather than the actual... Uh, I, I mean, a lot of this seems to be that mRNA is not fit for purpose and they used it anyway. And then the distribution process uh, compounds that yeah. exponentially by the sounds yeah. of it. So, so yeah, is... You need to bear in mind the distribution. There's an element of distribution in the manufacture in that as... As the um, as the um, the product is being manufactured, that the drug substance is made in one place, it's frozen down to minus twenty or minus seventy. Then it's shipped to another facility, and then to be shipped, it has to be in a a, a container that um, a container that keeps it at that temperature over five six days. So wow. you have to have a temperature monitor inside there, real-time temperature monitoring. You have to have a graph that, um, that, 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 that has to be expected at the end of the journey, proven that there were no temperature excursions outside the allowable range. Now, the chance of that happening, because these were all different companies, different legal entities, they weren't going to be working together because if anyone made a mistake, they were going to keep their heads down. And so, and there was an example of it with... Um, with with a, a, a shipment where one company had, had switched off the temperature monitor because they didn't want legal liability for anything. So all that stuff. So there's there was distribution opportunity for severe things going wrong in the manufacture and then in the distribution to the vaccination centers. That was horrific because and that was breaking. You no, know, that's break breaking all the rules of pharmaceuticals. You take in a minus empty frozen drugs into the vaccination centers. So they're not finished, they're only part finished. Now, you know, I I forget who it was. I, I was speaking to someone, Matt from NHS 100K, and I was saying to him, you're, you're a paramedic. Have you ever, if you're giving the patient ketamine or some sort of pain relief, have you ever had to take a big sort of pack of vials and th thaw them down from minus 70 degrees C to room temperature and then have to take mm -hmm. the cylindillo and put that in the vial. You never have. It's got to be presented to you in its finished form. If it's not and you have to do something to it, you can change its form and you could kill someone. We've been That's... doing that routinely for the last two and a half years. And it no. will have been, you know. This is the same psychological process, I suppose, as, as what we saw with the Milgram experiment. Just it's simply the same psychological process. You're not going to be responsible down the line or directly see or directly responsible for the person uh, who dies at the end of it. And you're one step along a, pro a disjointed process. Now, what, what I always say to people is that, like, you know, it, it, it's, it's estimated it's between like 62% and 67% of people fail the milgram experiment and keep going to to hurt their patient and it's very possible under those very specific controlled uh scenario of a guy sitting behind you saying no continue when you can't see the person etc but when yeah. you get up to an industrial scale like this where you've got all of the propaganda around you you've got pressure on your job on your work on the uh, wh whether your kids can go to school whether you can have a normal life uh, whether you're going to get your money then that goes up from 62 percent and 67 percent to much more and that's what people don't really you realize this is like disjointing accountability and responsibility from the person who committed the action is is how you get away with genocide um and we're seeing something very intriguing did how do you feel now did you used to feel uh very proud about your work within the pharmaceutical industry what you did with uh, distribution about the quality of my work but not not the my clients I mean, I, I, I mean, the typical client is from a university spin out. They want to be a millionaire. Or they want to sort of go and you know, sell a drug to big farm and go and spend spend their days in the sun. 
I um, bet you've seen some big, 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 big heads rise and fall. Oh God! I I was wondering why you. I bet them not mention names, but university professor from Scotland. He was going all over the world, setting up contracts with companies to make active ingredients. He'd met uh, JLS on uh, first class flight to um, to the, the 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 US, and he became best friends with those. Um, and they were bankrolled by a, a company in Singapore. And him and his, his mate were flying out of Singapore. They were baffling these investors with science. Mm. And I forget, uh, they were raising billions. And yeah. he was just spending it going all over. And in, I, had to, I had to say, look, I can't work with it anymore because, you know, this... This that's, doesn't make any sense. That's and, interesting, isn't it? When when you, you you see the character come out once you see all of this stuff, and it's like, okay, that's just too much trouble for my life. And it, a lot of people, I mean, this irresponsibility. It's it comes from this idea that you know, oh well, they haven't done anything, so it's innocent until proven guilty. But you know, the people who are attracted to running big pharma businesses are likely to be greedy, likely to show a, a manifest certain type of ethical and moral moral uh, quandaries to the rest of us so so we, we should probably judge them in a different way and instead we we tend to blanket rule everyone in society it should definitely be the people who are most likely to be responsible eventually for the largest amount of deaths should be the ones who are most carefully watched and have to have special rules applied to them and i thought that was what was within our society uh when i was younger and obviously we all learn when did you learn that um this world of pharmaceuticals because like you say you've had your experiences did you did you go into it as a young naive man were you just coming out of university or did you do anything like that well it's funny because um it, it, uh, I, i've written a couple of tongue-in-cheek books uh find it find it flog it particularly and i talk about how i used to i was living in neath and going back and forth uh, to Cardiff, to University in Cardiff. And on top of the build, the, the plant, as you pass Bridgend, was Miles Laboratories, the makers of Alka-Seltzer. And it used to intrigue me, and this, is, I was in, this was the mid-70s, and then by 1980, I was working there as an industrial engineer. Um, so I'd, I'd gone into sort of heavy engineering and uh, after being graduated as a production engineer, and uh, so, and that in those days, the whole industry was fully integrated. You know, you had the big pharmaceutical companies that owned all the facilities, owned all the people. Everything was made under one roof, uh, one quality system. Everyone worked for the same employer. They all had skin in the game. They all really had pride in what they were doing. When I joined Miles, we were making Alka-Seltzer in glass bottles. And, you know, with a screw top, you don't remember that, you're too young. But uh, <laughs> the, the, the funny you. thing is that in the glass bottle, there used to be a polystyrene packing piece between the lid and the top of the Alka-Seltzer. And quite often, a customer would send one back and say, look, I've had this tablet in my th and it doesn't dissolve. <laughs> oh, and, th th and that was a running joke. <laughs> and you know, so we were dealing directly with the people who were buying it, uh, and uh, we'd send them a, a complimentary bottle of Alcazar and say, "Oh, you know, it's people uh, watch out next time." <laughs> so it was um, a much nicer, a much nicer industry back then. I, uh, I, I absolutely think. full of gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, it was a gentlemanly industry, but of course, once this um, uh, and Smith kind of French, you know, those companies. So, so James Black, who was head of the development program for Targamet, he won a Nobel Prize. It was an exemplary development program. You know, 12 years, they did all the preclinical work. And uh, as it happened, Zantac had to be withdrawn, the other competitor, because it was associated with cancers in the end. So they obviously didn't do their preclinical work. So, um, so, so it just, now it's so fragmented. And... It's the power bases with the suppliers, with the contractors. It's it's like um, Michael Porter's five forces, you know, power suppliers, power the buyers. The big farmer is not big at all because it, it cannot make drugs without its supply base. Mm -hmm. So they can name their price. Big farmer buys in everything. And you know what, Johnny? 
if Pfizer went down, there would be a massive implosion of not the industry because everyone in the industry, the suppliers, the drug, small drug developers, they're all dependent on the blockbuster billions that are funneled down to them. Yeah. So uh, the big companies would be going out, going bust all over the place. So, so they they're too they they've got a point where they're too big to fail, and I think personally, I see this as the most dangerous part of the road uh that this big farmer road because this is a crossover where they're too big to fail and they they start to form a union with government and it becomes fascistic in its in its um, in how it manifests its policy and and agenda absolutely yeah yeah so yeah. D- d- what what future what do you see in, and I know I'm I, I know I'm asking uh, uh, you to be a little bit psychic to a sense, but what do you see probably in the mid to long term? Uh, this do you see the old pharmaceutical industry being there at all, or are they just gonna try and pump us full of everything that they don't know what it does? You know, are they gonna right. try everything well, experimental? Yeah. In in a rational world, I can tell you what the solution should be because Penicillin, the molecule wasn't patented. It was the process to make it that was patented. And, and that was actually devised by a guy at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Andrew Moyer. So in those days, and as we get forward into the various other drugs, um, the last of the paint process patented in was Targamet and Zantac. Again, the patents, uh, patents, I should call them, whatever I Talk to the U.S. guys. They always say, "What's a patent?" Hmm. <laughs> so, uh, 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 so, but with this, with with the um, Zantac and uh, and Targamet battle, suddenly they thought, "Oh well, if we painted the molecule, um, we've got the monopoly straight away. Even though it hadn't got a market, the patent gives us the monopoly." What they didn't think was that. By patenting at that stage, they, it, they didn't know if it was going to get the market or not. And ninety over 95% of drugs don't get the market these days. Mm-hmm. So that's where they, So we have to go back <clears throat> to saying, when you apply for the patent as a company, you have to give me enough data that tells me you've done the hard yards work, you know, in silico testing, in tissue, uh you know, ex vivo work, not in humans, but to prove that it's got an acceptable safety profile and there's some evidence it could be efficacious and that you can actually manufacture it at reasonable scale. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened before the the early 1980s. Of course, the gaming of patent law ever since has meant that patents... Uh, patterns are just the the only thing that that matters, and in fact, I've got a paper with Jeremy Hunt. I, I, you'll be glad to know. I don't know if I held I hosted a conference uh, in Cardiff Bay in two thousand and nineteen before this started, um, of about sixty people called Medicines for the Twenty First Century, uh, Safe, Better, Cheaper. Karen Jones did the inauguration address, and um, uh, Dr. Janet Woodcock, FDA, did. Uh, he spoke quite well, actually, yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> he's staying clear of any of the nasty stuff. But, but, um, and out of that, I collated all the inputs and wrote a white paper, and I managed to get that through to the Health and Social Care Committee. Jeremy had confirmed he had a copy of it, and I also put a one-page request for. And a government inquiry into patent law because that patents were creating unfair monopolies that these companies were taking advantage of. Where obviously, you know, they use that patent to market the bones out of the out of the product. Mm-hmm. I say in a rational, sane world, where we are now, you know, government and the industry are hand in glove. They are, you know. All, particularly in the UK, because the UK is, you know, is put, it's put its future post Brexit into becoming number one in the world in life sciences. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where all this started. In in fact, this started in two thousand and one. That the MISG I mentioned, they 
you probably know more about this than I do, but uh, I've I've been discovering this stuff as I and you know the more the more you dig, the more mm-hmm. the more horrendous stuff you find out. Yeah. Um, so uh, and in those days it was um, it, it, and the, the the CEO of Oxford of AstraZeneca was the chair in two thousand and one. And then the subsequent CEOs of AstraZeneca have continued to be the, the chair. Yeah. So you couldn't make some of this up. Well, I, I, I clearly see um, from my own research and from the period you're talking about, uh, I, to be honest, I see each decade um, uh, over the past 50 years, uh, 150 years really, as having its own uh, focus um and so that that uh private companies professional companies doing things in the shadows was happening in the 70s and then uh that sort of stuff started to become a bit more uh mainstream being able to experiment on stuff in the 80s partly because um i think porton down uh changed in the uk i'm talking specifically changed their uh policies um after uh it, it was clear they were going to be caught out on a load of different experiments they had uh done on on mass on uh human population i have an article on my site uh, on johnnyvedmore.com called uh, port and down's ideological cloud which kind of collates all of their the evidence-based uh factual experimentation that they were doing on millions and millions and millions of people and their decision to change the way they did things and so that the because the public were getting much more and so it started to affect how pharmaceutical businesses hid their stuff too they didn't have to hide it so much in the 80s and then the 90s came this idea okay we got to form something new we've got to create uh this uh network infrastructure we've got to make sure that we look at all of the different big companies and make sure their liabilities are reduced to as as low as possible especially their legal liabilities and their responsibilities we need to change the infrastructure of the pharmaceutical industries for the pharmaceutical businesses. And then in the noughties, the time you're talking about here, uh, it, the start is so fascinating because, of course, um, w- within uh, the Wellcome Trust article, I study Roy Anderson and Neil Ferguson during the foot and mouth crisis, uh, where they start, they, they uh, leave their base in Oxford um, after an argument uh, with someone who's later becomes very um, uh, uh, famous on the other side, on the old anti-vax side of uh, the modern COVID debate. Uh, But they leave Oxford and he leaves with this Wellcome Trust funding of about uh, 15 million. And Roy Anderson takes all of the guys across uh, to Imperial and they start studying foot and mouth all of a sudden four or five months before the foot and mouth outbreak suddenly happens and all of these guys seem to be really important um afterwards because of course they were put in charge of foot and mouth they just took over they pushed all of the experts to the side and they decided everything that would happen and and then enacted the worst cull you could possibly imagine in the most extreme uh way of doing things vaccines were the problem in in that that's what they said roy anderson argued against vaccinating cattle anymore they used to do ring vaccination they they start off uh, uh outside and work their way in um so, so that all of the cattle got vaccinated and no no just take them and kill them burn them in pyres on the sides of the road as you would have seen and i would have seen yeah i remember going up to um near you where where you are i went up to um uh oh where is it uh Lantwick major i was going to go up uh, on the cliffs and have a walk on my birthday uh in in 2001 something simple you know have a little smoke up on the 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 the, the cliff edge or whatnot um and it was all closed off it was all tape all around it because of foot and mouth you know closed yeah. down britain and then these people got put into these meetings and all of these meetings they're like the ones you're discussing there were a really wide range of all of the top big wigs of the pharmaceutical industry and that's where that this what we see now started to form and i believe was planned out really within that decade and then the next decade was manufacturing the consent for it they already started trying to do it by trying to scare everybody with every virus bird flu is going to kill 200 
hundred million, said Neil Ferguson, and in actual fact, killed like five thousand people or whatever, and yeah. or, or less than that, I think, in the in the end. Um, there's loads of there's loads of uh, of evidence that that has led us to a new stage, a new stage of development. You know, you saw um, Ebola be really, you know, focused in on to most of the time to scare everybody, and now what we're experiencing suggests to me that we're entering a new stage of um this which looks much more like um non-consensual experimentation on the human population um so how how uh, how do you think we can stop this is it, it loads of people scream out nuremberg 2 etc do you think we've got to that stage well in terms of what we now know has happened, I think we are at that. It should happen. How we force it to to, to happen? Um, I, I think things are uh, really ratcheting up. I've just I've been on a call earlier today with a group in Mississippi, and that they are looking to use product liability regulations, adulteration, and all this sort of stuff um, with lawyers involved. And the thing in the US, they've got this PrEP Act, and I, I think they're missing a trick because, and the military and all that, but in a sense, I think that's a diversion because they're, they're making products. It's not just the military involved in this. You know, in the in Europe, it's been pharmaceutical companies and the military haven't been involved at all. So I, I think there's some element of creating diversions here, but the, the way to get at this is to look, these are physical products, Go in and inspect what they've been doing because they've only had virtual inspections for the last three years. Proper inspectors and FDA have got them. And there's actually uh, inspections on the internet that show that they've been out of control in making this stuff. Um, I think we've got to get into uh, people taking the scientists out of it because they're, you know, there's too many people think, ah, oh, I'm a scientist, therefore I must know about drugs and vaccines and of course Fauci will follow the science it's all about science and they love it because they think oh yeah they will keep the real thinkers out of this the systems thinkers you know the people who aren't reductionist thinkers they're more the you know the Peter Checkland systems thinking uh, where you really get to the root cause of issues and then uh, stab them out so I think the, they're so the, the, this uh, group in Mississippi they go for the 50 states um to put um you know cases to stop the um the injections it only takes one it only takes one to work there's um i know at least three or four other people who are pursuing legal avenues it makes uh, sense to target um the probably the smaller companies uh, lower down for their involvement or any rules they broke so that you can take certain sections completely uh, completely out of the industry for 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 or at least put responsibility and accountability on them uh, so they can't do the same thing again and then that kind of stops the whole process being able to be completed you take out enough pieces um that's i, I find that idea and i've heard you discuss this i find that idea extremely interesting looking for the smaller areas to target right at the bottom of this process um and you're a man who knows where that needs to happen you know that's where your skill is i suppose but uh, what i'm finding is that in this conversation we're having it, you know it needs to be a strategic conversation with people who understand the nuts and bolts and who can put a strategy together but, uh, you know, uh, always the scientists are propping up saying, oh, yeah, but, you know, there's 10 million, there's 10 million moppers of that in the, and I'm not a scientist, and you you don't have to know anything about science to know how these things work, how this, uh, the whole... But people are intellectually and uh, sometimes spiritually and emotionally, people are a certain breed, you know, we all come out in a certain way, they say that there's an accountant's gene, um, there must be maybe uh, a scientist gene, you know, the more, more logical thinking who likes to rationalise with um, uh, definable experiments, uh, they have to be uh, in abundance and have, think only in a certain way once they're in their 
their group. Um, so I, it, what I think, what I hear you describing there, it, 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 it's very clear that Dave, the scientist, and this is what I've seen throughout the the past twenty years, the scientists have pushed everybody else out of the debate. All the people who can have um, an a rational ethical or moral objection to what is happening have been sidelined over time through a process of what the meeting you described earlier where you go to a meeting you say a couple of things and they you get your little mark on the the file everybody knows who you are from that point on and you're not welcome within the system because the system is not welcome into uh anything that goes against it continuing to uh, increase production of experimental medication that needs to then be experimented uh, on yeah. people wow this is a, a difficult world now there's a uh, like we're, we're coming closest to the end say we've got 10 15 minutes uh to talk about some stuff that i find really important because um of course i've experienced censorship over the past four years um this platform really uh, I'm creating is about trying to make sure that uh, I can focus on really the, the more censored and tab taboo subjects that are roaming around in society, because they're obviously the things we need to speak about. They're obviously the, the, the ones we need to talk about. And it's not all about, you know, lots of people, when they do that, they do it for clicks. So they did, they're talking about transgenderism or something. And maybe one day I'll talk about that. Uh, but, but, I, I want to get uh, a grasp on how censorship has affected other people. So how did it affect you over the past few years? Because you, 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 you're an industry man in that sense, you know, you've, you've got a knowledge and experience. So did you find pushback? Did you find your voice was, was made smaller during this period? Yeah. Well, the, the first um, real, real, I, I was talking about this on LinkedIn and uh, people were sort of liking what they were saying. Some people, so I was permanently removed in August 2021. Now, LinkedIn had been my platform, all my connections were on there, my clients, everything. So I wow. was completely cut out. And, I'm, you know, and I've barely worked since. And um, my wife said I should have retired anyway, but uh, I, I enjoy <laughs> working. And, um, and I was well respected in the industry, even though people knew... Uh, my views were controversial. They knew I was right, but they also knew that they were on the opposite side of the... I'm not saying I was right because I wanted to be right. I was saying, you, you know, I was saying common sense things that was backed up by evidence and facts. So, uh, so and I, um, I asked why, you know, was this a permanent uh, expulsion? And they said, yes. You know, and they would, and they give me my, they didn't give me much of my data back. Wow. So I'm, um, I'm left there, and um, well, I, I'm sort of the only saving grace now is that Twitter and Elon Musk, you know, he's he's cleaned up Twitter, and you can say these things, and I've got a following now of people who want to hear what I'm saying, yeah, rather than you know shut up because you're going to spoil kill the golden goose. I do. I do feel that's um. It's like a, a little bit of uh pennies thrown to the paupers in a sense. I do feel that Elon. I mean, I do a lot of research on Elon Musk, and he works for the Department of Defense contracts and all of those things, and he's got nefarious people in his background and an extremely interesting history. And I, you know, I judge him as much as I can, but I also accept that I could be wrong about things. But I have to admit myself the. Uh, it was a release of pressure that was well needed, whether or not that was seen by some form of authoritarian council on foreign relations or Chatham House style uh, group. We need to release a little bit of pressure. These people are getting too angry and revolution may approach because yeah. we had seen up until just before that point, if you remember, all of the scenes on the TV were screened were from things like Canada and I think it was something like Indonesia or something where there was like uh, violence on the street, the loser protests loads of anger so i do feel like there was a a release of pressure but it was a well needed release of pressure because it allowed me for for the first time in four years my tweets suddenly were able to gain some form of like n notice to a wider audience not just a 
carefully constructed circle and that was um uh for people who know my work will know i think it's the alliances for securing democracy housed within the german marshall fund created hamilton 68 which was the algorithm placed to control people like you and i um and and to decide who we were and to limit our reach and that hasn't gone away i don't think i still think it's there they've just reprogrammed it so don't expect that to last forever and that's what we why we need right now to make our bases while we've got a little bit of air and we can breathe a little bit um because i, I you know that th what you just said to me there i asked for i asked for a story of censorship and you just told me they took away your livelihood basically <laughs> which is which is i i don't mean to laugh but um it, it is exactly what you expect during that period if you fought against for against this tyranny and there was a lot of people who did and there was a lot of people um who uh lost lost a lot and the people right at the top the pharmaceutical industries they didn't lose anything um so what's your what 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 does your future look like how I, I mean of course people can support you yeah how can people support you and read your work best and what are you what are you doing at the moment what's your projects um i'm ramping up my sub stack i've had to move to i've been a lot has been free all along it's only five dollars a month so you know it's three quid a week uh, but still i've got four thousand six hundred subscribers 97 of which are paid so i've got to sort of uh, get that up uh higher one form of income i've also got taming the big farmer monster i sell it between four and ten a month nice. uh, but again if you want to understand how the industry works and what the issues are structure and all that sort of thing and you know certain ways of changing it uh, that's all in there on my website uh, Farmer Flow Limited. Uh, I've got all the books I've published, about six, six of them, and uh, and I've been paid for a few articles. You, you, uh, you, you, you uh, a few of these sort of um, alternative media, but it's not uh, so. He doesn't uh, pay much. I can promise you that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> What my passion is to uh, uh, facilitate a new model for drug development where healthcare professionals are driving, uh, are flying the plane. Mm -hmm. At the moment, we've got the passengers and the cabin crew flying the, the plane. We need, the, the you know, we need uh, healthcare professionals to be the equivalent of pilots in, in, they are the ones in charge of when you de develop a plane. It's in, in consultation and close consultation with people who understand aeronautics and the whole thing, and they will ultimately be flying it. And I've de I've detailed it, and uh, I, I want to uh, run the conference again, only on a bigger scale, uh, to get people... You know, there's lots of conferences going on, but it's all amongst scientists, and nothing's changing. So... I, I it's for me I, I keep doing this until I've got you know a breath in my body because I enjoy doing it but just trying to educate and I've 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 got an uh, education program set up with the University of South Wales which was running which has been running for the uh, uh, virtual education platform um so I've got the content I just I, I just want to create education so that people go to medical school understand that you know this is a supply chain here you know and when you develop it you go do this 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 is uh, you know drug metabolism pharmacokinetics all these things oh i didn't know that was involved oh yeah yeah my doctor did, uh, my my farmer rep didn't tell me that no i don't think he would <laughs> you know so mm -hmm. so that's um, a that's a big project that's a, a load uh, of projects yeah i i know i'm i'm, I'm sort of uh doing small small chunks do you think it's a bit of um do you feel a bit of freedom that you're set I, I mean i i know i'm i'm a lot of people are around doing the same sort of thing as i'm doing are discovering for the first time they no longer have to be chained to an organization and they can possibly make a living with the support of people who like their work do you feel like the freedom is just opening up all of your possibilities all of a sudden 
Yes, yeah, I, I've, I've, I've felt that since there's there, there'd be more people waking up, mm-hmm. you know. It's um, and uh, yeah, so I and the fact that I was doing all this stuff, writing books, trying to convince the industry what was going on, and now at least there, there is an audience there, it's starting to expand, and that's very satisfying. I mean, so, someone that took a hundred dollar paid subscription out, we found a member just. Just came on my email about two hours ago. Uh, th- that sort of support, honestly, um, I, I've, I, I'm right at the beginning of my journey. I, I, I spent, um, I've, I've been a journalist now since about 2015, 16, um, and and I've never ever asked. Like it's been like two times where I've been like, maybe you could support me if you like, and I, I felt really bad about asking. Um, but I, I, it's clear that I've got to dedicate my life to this and I can't afford to, to, to live life. And it's the same for everybody out there. And so the support we get from people, I mean, I know how that feels. It's, it's, it's more than just like someone giving you like, uh, chucking you a hundred dollars or, or, or 50 bucks here or whatever. It's, it's about someone saying, I believe in you and I want you to continue this path you're on. And honestly, that, that touches my soul and I know it touches yours so support the man headley reese headley um i really appreciate the fact you've come on uh today and told me so much and it's mind-blowing stuff and i'll put a load of links uh in with it and um i'm sure my audience is gonna completely love this conversation thanks for being honest thanks for being yourself uh mr police reese police in the the pharmaceutical (laughs) industry and uh, i hope we get to speak again very soon Yes, yeah, so thanks, Johnny. And I must say, I've learned a hell of a lot as well. So it's been a win-win. <laughs> Good. Good. Well, thank you for coming on. Uh, we'll speak to everybody later. Bye.